0: good morning everybody how are we i hope everyone's doing good i hope everyone's doing fine and having fun good morning looks like we've got quite a few folks here good that's always fun to see hey uh i want to share uh some of my excitement for my guest tonight dan bogle and part of my part of the process for us to not like we have to get in the mood for Dan, but one of the fun things about Dan is his incredibly interesting uh, way of looking at Mormon history, especially Joseph Smith, because we have an enigma with Joseph Smith. There's no question about that. It's obvious that various, it depends on one's background That depends on how we're going to be able to see and view and understand Joseph Smith. And I shared a couple of ideas yesterday in my uh, video podcast, and I did get uh, some of my new podcasts uploaded on the uh, backyardprofessor.org. You can go there and listen to the podcasts if you wish. And so In the process of getting ready to have a really fun discussion, I'm quite excited to have a good chat with Dan tonight. But his essay in this book, The Prophet Puzzle by Brian Waterman, is really profound. Um, It's quite impressive. The Prophet Puzzle Revisited. And. The the one thing now I remember reading this years ago, you know, and then but I had read it as an apologist and I never so far as I can remember, I never responded to it. And uh, in the process of of just doing my apologetic work, I jumped over on the book of Abraham. Um, I did read this book, The Prophet Puzzle, uh, bits and pieces of it. I didn't have this book as such, but I read I had read quite a few of the articles. So I had basically forgot about Dan's article here. And what I want to do is share this article with you, share the highlights, share some of my perceptions, some of my views. Now, I do remember specifically how Dan Peterson uh was telling us, I believe I was on the fair private email list at the time. And Dan Peterson was telling us that uh, Dan Vogel just didn't have a clue. <laughs> you know, Dan, Dan Peterson was never impressed with, with Dan Vogel. Uh, and I don't think Lou Midsley was either. Others, uh, tonight we'll get into that with Dan, but uh, so I thought, okay, let's, let's read this article. And, I was pleasantly surprised at the depth that Vogel went into in this, in Joseph Smith's mind. Now this was written, this book. Now we're talking 20 year old stuff, right? So, and that doesn't necessarily mean it's dated, but uh, 1999 signature books, sorry for burping and erping and hiccuping. Um so back then, 20 years ago, Dan wrote this article and he was responding to a, a, an article, a context which Jan Ships, another Mormon historian, had written 20 years before this one. And so what made this so remarkably interesting was uh, Bogle was hoping to update from Jan Ships perplexity in the 1970s concerning the enigmatic Joseph Smith. So, and then tonight and for the next several weeks, we're going to, Dan and I are going to yet again, upgrade what he said in this article from 20 years ago. So, so this will be fun to explore the, the evolutionary, changes of our thinking concerning joseph smith ship said there's basically um two joseph smiths and we we have to you know dan describes it as a schizophrenic mormon history very properly so because We've always seen Joseph Smith described when we were in our youth going to church. And as an apologist, we saw this theme that, well, Joseph Smith, of course, the anti-Mormons, they don't know anything. You know, they just say Joseph Smith's a charlatan or Joseph Smith didn't have a clue what he was doing, et cetera. He was deceived by Satan, et cetera. While we apologists, we're lionizing Joseph Smith. We were magnifying his greatness, his fortitude, his prophetic abilities, his godliness, his spirituality. We were mythologizing Joseph Smith. And this is what Jan Chips had recognized. What we have in Mormon historiography is to Joseph Smith's. And there's there's no way around this. This is the conundrum. This is why this book was written, The Prophet Puzzle. Brian Waterman did an excellent job in bringing together so many magnificent essays on Joseph Smith from all sorts of various kinds of disciplines. I mean, from from a religious standpoint, from a historic standpoint, from a psychological standpoint, uh, from a church standpoint. And it, the amazing thing is this book, and I think there's like 30 essays, 30 different. Oh, no, no, I lied. <laughs> exactly half. 15 really solid, well-researched essays on Joseph Smith. And the interesting thing about this is we have in Mormon historiography to Joseph's the one who started out digging for money. And of course, that didn't bring any kind of success. So he turned to becoming a prophet of God. And so what we're stuck with now is um, we, we have kind of a man of God. And we have a complete fraud. And that is tricky to get through. Dan Vogel in this particular article tries to go right between the horns of the dilemma here. He takes a middle approach, which I find exquisitely interesting. Um, The most obvious, and this is on page 50 of this book, The Prophet Puzzle, for those of you who came late. This is on page 50. The most obvious solution is uh, for us to understand Joseph Smith in Ship's puzzle, um is to suggest that Joseph Smith was a pious fraud and his idea here is that through a pious fraud he succeeded but here's how and this pious fraud this this sincere fraud theme someone who deceives in order to achieve holy objectives that's actually a very important point that Vogel brought out that i had not grasped the first time reading this article so the idea here is and and true the terms the pious the fraud you know the sincere fraud the like those aren't very satisfying at this point we he agrees with this nevertheless pious does connote a sincere religious conviction now Anybody who studied Joseph Smith's life uh, or who was raised Mormon really does get this. He was sincere in his testimony. I don't think that can be gainsaid. I, I think that's valid. That's a valid approach. Now, my use of fraud, now this is Vogel speaking, my use of fraud or deceiver is limited to describe some of Joseph Smith's activities, and this is a very important context. Which, and and it's been so long since I've read the apologetic on this. I, I'm going to go out on limb. I could be wrong, so, but I'm not so convinced the apologists nor even Mormons today. Not that I think a lot of Mormons are reading this article, and it is to their loss. But I don't think they grasp the significance of the limited approach that Vogel is taking here, that's why I'm at pains to emphasize this, this is actually critical. He said, I don't want to just say from birth to the end of his life, Joseph Smith was just a total deceiver, a fraud, a trickster, a phony, a charlatan. I think Vogel's responsible historical analysis here is really important because there's no question now, and he does present the evidence, some of Joseph Smith's activities are definitely fraudulent. So let's explore those is Vogel's approach. Um, and the possible, the possible uh, his claim that the Book of Mormon is a translation of an anciently engraved records or his creation of the golden plates from tin. Things like this. It was not being a fraud or a deceiver of Joseph Smith's person himself. Uh, In other words, Smith, and this is so important, I even have a, uh, oh no, I've got it up. There it is. Oh, I should have left this one up longer. The pious deceiver, someone who deceives in order to achieve holy objectives. And now we've seen this banner. Smith was willing to deceive others in order to turn them to God. This is so important. He was believing that he had been called of God. Now, this is obvious when you read Joseph Smith's life, right? So let's grant that. Vogel grants that, properly so, to preach repentance in the most effective way possible. That's his emphasis on Joseph Smith's approach to this. So now we get to explore what is the most effective way possible to preach repentance in his sincere belief that he had been called of God. Vogel grants that because uh, unlike Melvin T. Smith, which I read to you last night or or yesterday afternoon, uh, we, we know Joseph Smith brought in the divine in his history. Okay, we can grant that. That's all good. So how does he effectively utilize that? divine element um, in order to help others turn to God. This is what Vogel is showing. He regarded himself as a defender of God. And this is really important. Indeed, the book's religious appeal in the Book of Mormon is because it has a defense of God, of Jesus Christ, spiritual gifts, its call to repentance, etc. So this argues strongly against presuming that Joseph Smith's motives were malicious or completely self-serving. And I'm one of those that likes to read the footnotes. And on this, I've circled I've circled this particular footnote there and I I gave myself a note, read this, page 63 in this book. (laughs) So I don't forget it because the idea here in this footnote is really quite important in assuming, and this is footnote seven in assuming the role of Prophet, Joseph was not necessarily acting maliciously or selfishly, according to Vogel. In this regard, Smith's comment to Oliver B. Huntington is most interesting. Here's his recollection, Huntington's recollection. He said, well, Joseph Smith said that some people entirely denounce the principle of self-aggrandizement as wrong. It is a correct principle, he said and may be indulged upon, only one rule or plan. And this is the context for self-aggrandizement from Joseph Smith himself. And the idea here is that to elevate, benefit, and bless others first. If you will elevate others, the very work itself will exalt you. Upon no other plan can a man justly and permanently aggrandize himself. Now that's remarkable. I never heard that in Sunday school. That's why I wanted to read the footnote because that is really, that is amazing. So among the first lines, Joseph Smith wrote in his new journal, when he began keeping a journal after all, he said, okay, yeah, I've got to record all this stuff. Uh, And this was November, 1832. He said, oh, my God, grant that I may be directed in all of my thoughts. Oh, bless thy servant. Amen. And a few days later, he also wrote, uh, oh, Lord, deliver thy servant out of temptations and fill his heart with wisdom and understanding. I just want to point out, Vogel didn't point this out, but I will. (laughs) At least I don't think he did. In the footnote, maybe he did. Wisdom and understanding. Is No, he didn't. Good. Thanks for leaving me something, Dan. <laughs> Wisdom and understanding. This is a beautiful Kabbalistic uh, theme without question. Uh, those are two of the most emphasized aspects in, in the Jewish Kabbalah. J- just to point that out. So, And this is in his most private thoughts. So we don't see uh, the charlatan, the deceiver here at this point. Yes? Okay, so such passages. Now, this is remarkable, too, because Dan Vogel is stretching his wings as a historian here. Uh, He's established himself. He's already written his origins of the American Indian. Or, Or no, sorry, sorry. I've got the book right here. Sorry, I've got to do the backyard professor thing. I just looked this up the other day. So I knew where I'd put it. Indian origins in the Book of Mormon by Dan Vogel. And this got some reviews in the Review of Books of the Book of Mormon on by Farms. You can just imagine what those reviews were, right? <laughs> maybe, maybe Dan and I can talk about those a little bit, but wow. So what we're finding here is um, such passages which Brody either ignored. Dan Vogel is now taking on Fon Brody with her lack of historical prowess as it were. And he says, okay, here's the shortcoming with Brody. Let's understand, I'm not trying to be overly critical. I'm trying to assess the validity of the historical situation with Joseph Smith because as Jan Ships has so properly pointed out, there are serious problems here with Joseph Smith. We have an enigma, right? so he said brody apparently ignored or was unaware of these journal entries and these do reveal joseph's inner spiritual world and those who disregard this who fail to recognize a deeply spiritual dimension dimension to smith's character or who count his profession of religion as contrived throw away a major piece of the profit puzzle. Now this is significant, this is amazing. I'm convinced that those who wish to understand Smith on his own terms, which is of course, let's be frank, that's the only way we're gonna get there. But that means we have to read Joseph Smith's materials. Like I've said before, Go to the source. The way we learn how to think instead of what to think. Dan Vogel is showing us this beautifully in this article where he goes to the source. And apparently Fawn Brody did not do so. So those who wish to understand Joseph Smith on his own terms must escape the confinement of Brody's paradigm. I'm not sure if he ever got hot in hot water for that or not. But at the same time, one cannot turn a blind eye. So classic Vogel. This is one reason why I love the guy. Don't tell him I said that. Uh, he might be here this morning. I, I haven't checked. Oh, wow. It looks like everybody's commenting. I'm sorry. I have to stay on the banners part of this so that I can share the, the bottom information on the bottom of the screen for you i'll read the comments afterward if you're saying anything nice thank you if you're saying something wicked evil or bad about me get out (laughs) okay here here is the key okay so he's taken Brody to task somewhat for being negligent of joseph smith's own sources a very valid historical stance at the same time, notice how Vogel does this. I love this. At the same time, one cannot turn a blind eye to Smith's willingness to deceive. And so one of the clearest indications of this is the public denials of teaching and practicing polygamy while privately doing so. So he makes a very good point here. Now, uh, perhaps the more relevance in his activity as a treasure seer. And so he brings in this particular uh, aspect of Joseph Smith's childhood. This is one of those pieces of the puzzle, which I believe has been mass mishandled. And he's saying this in 1999. Now, Quinn uh, in his Joseph Smith and Mormonism, early Mormonism and the magic worldview. and, And I just looked this up the other day too. Uh, In his second, this is his second edition, the huge conglomeration of a book on the early Mormonism magic worldview. But the second edition, well, this was 1998. so, So Vogel is aware of Quinn's work. And there's some give and take between them. It's all good. We're all historians here trying to understand. And just because Quinn writes a gigantic, huge 890 page book does not mean he's right at everything. Yeah nobody ever is. Vogel is astute enough to know that, but he's not criticizing any of the other historians. He is presenting a suggestion, and I like how he does this. He says, so um, this is one of the pieces of the puzzle, I believe, that has been mishandled or not fully appreciated by Mormon scholars. Generally, uh, fortunately now in time, and I've got it here somewhere anyway, uh, and I will be utilizing it Oh my gosh, where did I put it? Here I thought I was so organized. I, yeah, it's under a stack of books over there for tonight. Uh, Richard Bushman's Rough Stone Rolling. Uh, I, I believe he is attempting to. He's the one that said the narrative of Mormonism just can't hold water anymore. We really have to change the narrative. And so in his valiance as a Mormon historian, he attempted to do that in Rough Stone Rolling. And the response from his own people is, Ugh! another anti-Mormon book. (laughs) The poor guys can't seem to win uh, because they are trying to put in the truths that Boyd K. Packer didn't think was very useful, yet which give us a much greater context. This is what makes Vogel's material so excellent is because he too does that. Yes. So, uh, So this is as of 1999, I do believe, I hope. We'll find out from Dan tonight, won't we? Uh, If the narrative has been moving along, if if we begin to understand more of this and the real the real uh, truth and understanding of Joseph Smith in the treasure digging aspects is he was not just the little young boy who was being bossed around saying, Everyone else telling him, "Hey, Ked, go go look through your stone over there." Hey, Bubba, we're gonna go this direction. You follow along while we do the work, etc. No, Joseph Smith was the man in charge, realistically. And Vogel does a good job of presenting this. Now, when he was arrested in Bainbridge, and they had the Bainbridge trial, eighteen twenty-six, one of the witnesses. Uh, testifying, Jonathan Thompson was testifying in Joseph Smith's defense. And he said, well, Joseph uh, found a trunk uh, and we we were digging and we heard the clunk, boink, we hit the trunk. And then all of a sudden, uh, Joseph said, whoa, 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 whoa. Joseph acted very terrified. And he said, oh my gosh, I see. uh, Excitedly, they asked Smith to look into his stone again to verify the source of the sound. But as Thompson reported, Smith would not look again, pretending that he was alarmed on account of the circumstances relating to the trunk being buried, which came all fresh to his mind. And that the last time he looked, he discovered distinctly the two Indians who buried their trunk, that a quarrel ensued between them, and that one of the said Indians was killed by the other and thrown into the hole to the side of the trunk. To guard it, as he supposed. And so despite failing to uncover the trunk now, and this was happening in the court trial, 1826 in Bainbridge, but they never got the trunk. Yet Thompson remained a believer in Smith's professed skill. And he was explaining to the court that on account of an enchantment, the trunk kept settling away from under them while digging. Now, let's look at this context for a little bit. I, I appreciate how Vogel did this. Um, I, I really. Uh, let's see. If, is that the right one? Yeah, close enough. Here's the issue. Those who believe Joseph Smith literally translated the Book of Mormon from anciently engraved plates or those who attempt to dismiss his previous treasure-seeking activities as irrelevant, both these approaches have a problem with Thompson's testimony in this court. And the reason why is because central to the conundrum here is the knowledge that Smith used the same stone to seek treasure in which he used to translate the Book of Mormon. So the implications are obvious, according to Vogel if Smith actually translated and received the revelations with his stone, as Mormon apologists maintain, didn't he also locate real buried treasure by that same stone? Now, that's an interesting conundrum. So specifically in the instance that Thompson reported, there was an actual trunk. And did Smith really see the two Indians who had fought over it? You see, he's describing... Uh, Seer Thompson is describing Joseph Smith's seer activity while looking into that stone and the apologists don't want to approach that. Vogel in a proper historical contextual setting ignoring, thank God, Boyd K. Packer saying, no, we don't want to put everything in the record. We just want to make sure Joseph Smith comes out smelling like a rose, right? The mantle is far, far, far greater than the intellect. Well, it was In Boyd Packer's case, that's for damn certain. But in Vogel's case, his intellect outpaced Packer's by light years. So any explanation of Joseph Smith must account for the details provided by Thompson's friendly testimony if it is to be taken seriously. And see, you leave out this because you don't like the idea of him treasure-seeking and that is part of what produces the enigma of Joseph Smith. So, Vogel, properly as a historian, says, look, the more context that we include historically, the better, the more valid our understanding is going to become. It, it has to become better, the fuller the context, which I heartily agree with, without question. Again, this is what makes Dan Vogel so important to read. Now, you don't have to believe. Everything he says, I don't do that with any historian, but inspect the materials, weigh both pro and con with the probabilities. And you find that Vogel's materials end up being far more useful than the apologetic materials. And I'm not trying to disparage the apologetic materials, I'm saying from a historical stance, I sincerely believe Vogel's approach makes a better kind of a sense of the whole impact of what the history is now revealing about Joseph Smith. That, that, that is the key. So. so there are three ways that Vogel discusses uh, Thompson's friendly testimony, if it is to be taken seriously. The one way Joseph Smith did in fact see a treasure chest in his stone that was not really there. In other words, his visions and revelations were the product of his imagination. The second key that... uh, Oh, I'm not going to get to that one just yet. Let me keep going. The second key is Smith saw nothing in his stone, but he only pretended that he did. And the third key is... Smith saw a real treasure chest in his stone, which, no matter the explanation, was never recovered. Those are the three options. So in order to be consistent now, and this is what else I like about Vogel, when he does bring in the material that the church has squelched for all these uh, decades and now going on to centuries, uh, you have to uh, re-approach the whole theme here To gain consistency, apologists must must either accept the treasure-seeking lore of Joseph Smith's day as reality, and I suspect they ended up coming around to that, but they've still tried to context it into a minimal damage to the mythological Joseph Smith they themselves have created, but I, I think it has become obvious that it was part of his reality. And this includes belief in seer stones, mineral rods, guardian spirits, bleeding ghosts, enchanted treasures that slip through the earth and the like, as D. Michael Quinn has done. So see, Vogel is a good historian that he is, is aware of D. Michael Quinn's material, of course. So thereby reject rationalist categories of historical investigation, or we have to come face to face with a Joseph Smith who either consciously or unconsciously deceived so it's an interesting dichotomy by bringing in the greater historical context which dan vogel is seeing here so let's keep looking at this uh and and now again the fact also that smith allowed his family and his friends even those hostile to his claims Lucy Harris and Isaac Hale, etc., to handle the plates while covered with a cloth or concealed in a box. This excludes the possibility of an unconscious fraud. Notice how he's systematically, historically looking at the issues between Joseph Smith and his friends and family, and how those issues help us narrow down what kind of man was Joseph Smith. An unconscious fraud. Realistically, probably not. His actions show something else. I I love how he did this. And likewise, a detailed examination of Smith's activities as a treasure seer presents examples not easily explained as Smith's self-deception. Very interesting. Josiah stole another believer in Joseph Smith's gift testified at the Bainbridge court hearing in 1826 also that Smith said that he saw in his stone a treasure um, and it was on a certain root of a stump five feet from the surface of the earth and with it would be found a tail feather. After digging, Stoll said that they found a tail feather, but the money was gone that he supposed that money moved down out of his reach. So here's the idea when we, when we take a step back, let's think about this. The discovery of an object not normally found underground becomes either proof of Smith's true gift or else evidence of his fraudulent activity for the deluded do not accomplish such feats. Very interesting. So we see the idea that Joseph Smith wasn't deluded by examining the historical material, very interesting. So you notice how Vogel is again narrowing down by eliminating certain possibilities and probabilities and issues. So so this is cool. So where are we getting to? Well, he tells us in uh, this instance, rather than accept Stole's explanation for the treasure's disappearance, it seems easier. Notice he's not declaring this as historic fact, but it does seem easier to suggest that Smith, of course, planted the tail feather earlier on and they didn't realize that. So, despite the appearance of evidence of conscious fraud, I would caution against viewing Smith's activities as a treasure seer in either-or terms. You notice Vogel's not necessarily taking a black-white view of Joseph Smith, and in my opinion, this is a great way to proceed. Yeah, I like this very much. It's rarely either black or white. There's much more to it. It's possible that Smith was both deluded and deceptive in his operations and you go huh how does that work both deluded and deceptive vogel recognized that that is how we would react so here's the explanation so let's look at it this way smith may have been sincere in his claims about seeing treasures and guardian spirits in his stone But he was sometimes tempted to provide proof through fraudulent means, either to satisfy his followers or to silence his enemies. And that is what actually many normal people would do. So it makes sense that this becomes a viable option, as far as I'm concerned, in the Book of Mormon. Joseph Smith does not deny the treasure seers worldview. Um, he integrates it. Now, this is interesting because the Mormon, the Mormon historians who claimed that Joseph Smith did not involve himself with treasures, yet they claim the Book of Mormon is the most correct book on the face of the earth, like Joseph Smith taught him. And yet he is incorporating treasure-seeking right into the text of the Book of Mormon. And I I should have made a banner of this, doggone it, I'm sorry. His subsequent religious beliefs described cursing and slippery treasures. This is Helaman 12, 18, and 19. For those of you who, like me, want to look at the evidence, I I apologize, I didn't make a banner here. Helaman 13, 17 through 22, uh, and... Then verse 31, Mormon 1, 18, and 19. And the idea here is, yes, he did put that into the Book of Mormon, but he also was restricting the use of the seer stone to just translating. And that's found in Mosiah 8, 13 through 18. So the fact that Smith's claimed interviews with the heavenly messenger were concurrent. This is occurring at the same time that he's treasure digging as he's getting the Book of Mormon from Moroni. It's happening at the same time altogether. Uh, He used the same stone to include the translation of the Book of Mormon. So what this does is it excludes any explanation that attempts to separate these two roles. We're beginning to see Dan Bogle stitch together the two different Joseph Smiths here. It's not an either-or dichotomy. Either he was a man of God or he was a charlatan. Vogel's historical knowledge and understanding and grasp of how historical methodology function is really powerful here to show that we need a new assessment and he gives it to us. Very interesting. Now, here's the next question. Uh, Oh, I've got that one all right. Here's the next theme that Vogel begins to bring forward is we need to recognize that there won't be a consistency between the private Joseph Smith and the public Joseph Smith. He will appear in some respects, in some ways, with his followers, you know, when he's helping them build the temple or whatever, or founding a city or hiding from mobs. And yet in his private life, he's going to be very different when he gets in the church councils behind closed doors with his most special chosen followers and leaders. And so Bogle begins to assess this particular aspect in order to discover who is the inner Joseph Smith. And this is so that this is where his detective work began to fascinate me immensely. The question is what were the rationalizations or even more precisely his own inner moral conflicts who deceives in God's name, even while also holding sincere religious beliefs because Vogel demonstrates through the historical evidence that this is in fact the Joseph Smith we find in history. Very remarkable how he does that. So we must seek to discover the emotional and the spiritual and the intellectual reality from which Joseph Smith operated, not from where we want him to have operated as Boyd K. Packer tried to promote. That makes all the difference in the world in actually understanding the real Joseph Smith. Boyd K. Packer, if you didn't know it by now, missed that. He never did get to the true Joseph Smith, even though he bore solemn testimony, you know, to the sacred name of Joseph Smith. Oh, oh, no, wait, that's to Jesus at least according to David Bednar. Now, a revelation dictated in March 1830, and again, this is the very month that the Book of Mormon came right off the press, is most revealing of Joseph Smith's early state of mind. Directed to Martin Harris, the revelation defends universalist doctrine. Now, this is really important. I I thought this is really really interesting here. In fact, I'm going to give you the banner right now. And this was a revelation to Martin Harris. And the revelation defends universalist doctrine. And this is a seeming reversal of Book of Mormon teaching and it also advances an unorthodox version of Jesus' atonement. So when we examine this closely, this revelation reveals not only Smith's private belief in universalism, but also an unintentional glimpse into his pious rationalizations. Despite scriptural references to the Torment and the suffering of the wicked, Joseph Smith's revelation declares, It is not written that there shall be no end to this torment. DNC 19, verse 6. So he's explaining the terms here eternal punishment and endless punishment. These are equivalent to saying, These are God's punishment. Now, eternal and endless are synonyms of God, not to the duration of the punishment. Now, that is an astute observation, man. And I have seen Vogel discuss this on message boards before so this is not new to me i just want to emphasize for the audience here if you have never seen this discussion that's very interesting that's very interesting So while one might wish to conclude that Smith was simply placating Martin Harris, and and you can go that direction. Sure. And his own universalist beliefs may have caused him some misgivings about the book that he had promised to financially sponsor. Right. So it would make sense that Smith would try to, you know, calm down, Martin, calm down. (laughs) Right. Here's a revelation from Jesus. (laughs) Sure. But Vogel says this. He says, well, okay, let's look at it this way. The restorationist tone of the revelation reflects Smith's true theological leanings. Leanings he would develop further in his 1832 vision of three heavens. And we find this in in section 76 of the Doctrine and Covenant. So now this revelation itself... Uh, this revelation itself suggests a reason for the conflicting doctrines. And this is one of the shockers in Vogel's argument, right? The revelation suggests that God has purposely used misleading language in order that it might work upon the hearts of the children of men. Now that's DNC 197. So what we're seeing here, in other words, God sometimes deceives humankind for their own good. <laughs> Remarkable. Uh, this is exactly the kind of rationalization that one expects of a pious deceiver, or a religious pretender. Now Vogel's putting his finger on the pulse of this issue, isn't he? The revelations, though they do give us uh, a a much more open uh, interpretation than we have been presented in church, are now helping us grasp Joseph Smith as a pious fraud once we see the revelations he was receiving. How does that work? Let's see. Not surprisingly, and this is in the book, but for those of you who have come late, The Prophet Puzzle, edited by Brian Waterman. I'm reading Dan Vogel's article, The Prophet Puzzle Revisited. Um, and so so the way Vogel describes this, really interesting, not surprisingly, the, and I'm on page 55. Not surprisingly, the revelation invokes secrecy. Of the contents okay yeah we get that sure because fearing that it's teaching of a temporary hail hell not hail hell h-e-l-l the temporary hell would encourage sinners to remain unrepentant so the revelation instructs its recipients To preach not but repentance, just only go to repentance, you guys, and show not these things, neither speak these things unto the world, for they cannot bear meat, but milk must suffice for now. So they must not know these things lest they perish. And that's in the book of commandments, chapter 16, 22 and 23. And then we can compare that with DNC 19, 21, and 22. And again, I've circled the footnote uh, to footnote 21, meaning it's a good footnote. Yes, I'm one of those who loves to read the footnotes as well. It also helps you learn more. That's how to think instead of just what to think. So, footnote 21 said, now, and this was why I wanted to read this. When published, uh, in the 1835 Doctrine and Covenants, this passage was altered to explain why its stipulated secrecy had been violated by publication. Oh, yeah. Show not these things unto the world until it is wisdom in me. For they cannot bear meat now. That was House Published. And the phrase: neither speak these things. Well, that was taken out. That was deleted. So the publication of this revelation in 1833 and 1835 was to Smith's advantage as it improved his position with those who were having difficulty accepting his 1832 vision of three heavens. Now that begins to make sense because it provided the needed transition between the Book of Mormon and the vision. I thought, okay, I I love how Vogel is going. Notice, uh, we learn how to think by going to the sources. Uh, Studying down Vogel is an excellent exercise for our mental sharpening because he goes to the sources. So don't neglect the footnotes, Sincerely. Now, and I'm on page 56. Despite publicly posing as a believer in the traditional heaven and hell, Smith was privately a universalist. Um, And therefore, he did not fear, he did not fear an eternal, never-ending hell that would have troubled most pious deceivers. So, like previous religious pretenders, Smith must have taken comfort in such biblical examples as Abraham and Jacob. Fearing for his life, Abraham instructed his wife Sarah to withhold their true marital status from the Egyptian pharaoh, of course, and so she presented him as her brother. And this was a half-truth, but certainly, but a deliberate deception nonetheless, and that is what is so important. Now, perhaps responding to those who found it difficult to excuse Abraham's behavior. I mean, remember, Abraham, he is the father of the faithful. To see him being deceptive, you know, that, that can come as a rude jolt. Smith included in his book of Abraham a prediction, a variation, a predictable variation on this already troubling story. Here is how Smith said it. Instead of Abraham telling his wife to lie about the marital status, Smith has God instruct Abraham to tell Sarah to lie. Very remarkable, interesting little twist in Joseph Smith's stance on this. That's worth noticing. What this does, of course, is it excuses Abraham. Smith introduced the more troubling proposition that God is sometimes the author of deception. So this assertion would have outraged Orthodox believers. I mean, it would probably still make a lot of Mormons very uncomfortable, right? I mean, if God's willing to lie, can you believe him? Get sticky quick, right? Well, this assertion is nevertheless a concept that fit with Joseph Smith's personal and private theology. Now, this is remarkable. You go, well, you can't read Joseph Smith's mind, Dan Vogel. You know, I'm quite certain some of the apologists would have responded in that vein. I apologize, it's been so many years since I've read their review of this particular article that I honestly don't know. So I'm not trying to gossip here, but you can't read Joseph Smith's mind is definitely something an apologist will claim and has claimed in the past. It would not surprise me if that's what they're doing here. And yet look how Vogel does this. We actually can see some actions that does reveal Joseph Smith's inner mind. And this is very important to see here. Despite the biblical precedents, universalism remains a major element in Smith's ability to rationalize his fraudulent activities, both as a treasure seer in his early childhood and later as an a prophet in his adulthood. So this is combined with the belief that God sometimes deceives in order to save his children. Universalism helps explain how Smith could perpetrate a religious deception at the same time having the appearance of a deep and sincere faith. Those who continue to overlook this aspect of this private belief system will never understand his evolution as a prophet. Quite remarkable. Yes. And then he goes through Nephi killing Laban while Laban was dead drunk. Nephi justifies his murder because... It's for a greater good that a nation does not end up disbelieving and perishing in disbelief. So the commandment, murder the man, is accepted. There's a religious justification here for a better good is how uh, Vogel is showing this particular interpretation of the Book of Mormon, which realistically is about the only way you can interpret the murder of Nephi, even though it's been tried to be justified by a lot of Mormon apologetics. So the decisive moment in Joseph Smith's day was when he was going, he was going back out. It was after a long sleepless night. And he was going back out to the field and he, tri- he went to climb the fence and he tripped and fell over and passed out. And the angel showed up and he said, have you told your dad yet? And Joseph said no. And the angel said, well, get your butt over there and tell your father. This is a decisive moment for Joseph Smith. Because the story takes on a different cast if we view Joseph Smith as a pious pretender. In this instant, the event becomes the moment of Smith's resolve to cross moral lines, perhaps with the spirit's urging to invent the existence of the plates for a good cause. While Nephi pretended to the to be the evil Laban to gain access to the brass plates, Smith would pretend to be Mormon, the ancient editor of those plates. The Book of Mormon's version of Adam's fall, also lends itself to pious rationalizations, a radical departure from Orthodox Christianity in the Book of Mormon teaching of the fall, that it was part of God's plan, it would ultimately produce more good than evil. And here's how how 2 Nephi 2.25 puts this. Adam failed that men might be, and men are, that they might have joy. So similarly to Nephi here, Joseph's Adam found it necessary to violate God's commandment not to eat of the tree of knowledge in order to fulfill a higher law and bring about a greater good. In other words, the ends do justify the means here. This is what we're beginning to see in the scripture stories that Joseph Smith produced, uh, whether through revelation, uh, through a seer stone or revelation, just direct. It, it doesn't matter how the revelation was received. We're beginning to see something of a pattern here. Let's keep looking. This is really, really interesting. Unlike Eve, Adam had willfully sinned and knowingly brought about spiritual and physical death upon himself all for the good of humankind. This is how Adam is presented in the Book of Mormon, which is one of Joseph Smith's productions. That's what Vogel is pointing out. Okay, so let's go on. This is the idea of the fortunate fall, uh, the pious deceiver, the fall for the pious deceiver is obvious. Smith was perhaps attracted to it because it appeared to him at least to justify the ethically contradictory actions of his own mission. And when the Mormons examined Joseph Smith, as opposed to do I dare say real historians <laughs> like Vogel, because that's going to insult some of the Mormon historians. And I don't intend on doing that, but, but for those, what can I say? More careful uh, historians, perhaps. Yeah. That would be a little bit more, more realistic. Uh, we're beginning to see why there's a two Joseph Smith schizophrenic Mormon history. And we're also beginning to see that on a closer examination of quite a few of the... Notice the the scripture uh, stories that Vogel is discussing are not just some of the minor unimportant ones. No, we're talking the opening of the Book of Mormon, Nephi's murdering Laban. We're talking about one of the most major theological doctrines, Adam's fall, you see. We're talking the father of the faithful Abraham. These are major scripture stories that Joseph Smith is slightly changing in his scriptures that gives us this "end justifies the means sort of look. So let's keep looking at what else Vogel finds. These are seriously significant issues there. So assuming Joseph Smith, pious deceiver. Now I'm on page 59 of this book. For those of you who showed up late, the prophet puzzle by Brian Waterman. uh, Assuming Joseph Smith was a pious deceiver. Did he like the Targums, Rebecca, or even his own Abraham, believe his deception was inspired of God? Now, Let's take a look at this. How can God inspire someone to be deceptive is the question. Do we have something that we can kind of get a a foothold on to potentially test this question? Yes, in fact, we do. Specifically, did Joseph Smith believed the Book of Mormon was inspired, although he knew it wasn't ancient history. Despite Smith's claims that the Book of Mormon resulted from a purely mechanical process of translation, one in which Smith simply read the translation from the seer stone, uh, he seems to have actually operated from a liberal view of revelation, one that rationalizes the production of fraudulent scripture. Now, that's a pretty bold claim, Vogel, I, I mean, come on now. And see, if you was to stop right there and label Dan Vogel, if you were a Mormon apologist, they would say, oh, pff, that's just anti-Mormon twaddle. Now he's just being crude against Joseph Smith. However, let's take a further look rather than just simply throwing the book away at this point and saying, ah, just anti-Mormon, filth and trash. I don't feel the spirit burning in my heart. Therefore, it can't be true, right? So let's see. Early on during the translation, of course, Oliver Cowdery also wanted to translate. And Joseph Smith received a revelation. And so Cowdery tried to translate and he couldn't. And he was frustrated. And Smith's revelation, Jesus's revelation through Joseph Smith to Oliver Cowdery explained this. He said, Uh, you have not understood that you must study it out in your mind. And then when you do, if it's a correct translation, then your bosom will burn within you. So as an experienced rod worker and clairvoyant, Cowdery naturally expected the translation to be revealed to him from an outside source. Keep that in mind. In the previous revelation, god have already promised him i will tell you in your mind and in your heart by the holy ghost and that's dnc 8 verse 2 right so now he is being told that you must study it out in your mind that the translation would come from his own thoughts what Hey, can I call you back in just a few minutes? I'm in the middle of a podcast. Huh? Okay. Yeah. Let me call you. See ya. <laughs> a very dear friend whom I'm also going to have a guest on in this podcast someday soon. So, um, now what was I lying about? Okay. Now, Cowdrey is saying, no, you go to your own mind. Um, But Vogel asks a question here. What is there to work out in one's mind if there is nothing there to begin with? Okay, let him continue. If the thoughts come from his own mind, as the revelation is saying, is not that the same as writing the book himself? So it is doubtful that Cowdery found such a definition of translation useful, (laughs) to say the least, you know. Oh, and in fact, he says, at least he never returned to the subject, although other records awaited his attention. That's interesting, too. Oliver Cowdery never brought it up again. I wonder if it, it kind of uh, turned him off, that it wouldn't come from an outside source like he thought it was happening with Joseph Smith. So regardless of the outcome, here's what the revelation hints at now. Uh, Smith privately held a definition of translation in Revelation that was more liberal than many of his followers held without question. One which is so internal that the seer stone and the plates become mere props. Now this is getting significant. Of course, Smith encouraged the view that he was simply reading the God-given translation from his stone when he was actually working the words out in his mind. And he was dictating the words he felt good about and forgetting about those Not worth remembering. In Smith's view, the words were inspired regardless of their true origin. There's the key with this concept of translating the Book of Mormon. So near the close of the Book of Mormon, Moroni writes that everything which inviteth and enticeth to do good and to love God and to serve him is inspired of God. That's Moroni 7, 13. And again, everything which inviteth to do good and to persuade to believe in Christ is sent forth by the power and the gift of Christ. Wherefore, ye may know with a perfect knowledge that it is of God. See, that's verse 16. So, in another place, Christ is made to reason this way. He says, okay, these things are true, for it persuadeth men to do good. And whatsoever thing persuadeth men to do good is of me. Uh, for good cometh of none, save it be of me. That This is in Christ's words. I am the same that leadeth men to all good. And that's Ether 4, 11, the 12. So even if Smith wrote the Book of Mormon himself under this definition, it was still inspired of God because it attempts to persuade humankind to do good and to believe in Christ. So Smith's reasoning here is simple. The Book of Mormon is of God because All things which are good cometh of Christ. That's Ether 424. For the devil persuadeth no man to do good. No, not one. Neither do his angels. Neither do they who subject themselves unto him. That's in verse 17 there. So here is what is so important. We Have he would have Joseph Smith would have extended this principle to include himself, and there's the bingo winner, of course, his desire to save others, even if he has to be deceptive about it was a good thing, and therefore inspired of God and not of Satan, and evil men do not perform good deeds. So therefore, in performing the deception, the overall greater good justifies the deception, which means that it ends up being a good thing to be deceptive. And this is apparently how he put it into the Book of Mormon too, as well as the Doctrine and Covenants. So perhaps too, Smith believed that he was specially qualified to write scripture, that God was called upon him because of his talent as a storyteller and considerable powers of persuasion, of course, that he was inspired by God in the general, but not in every particular. Okay, now you go, Oh, uh, that's an interesting point. Yeah. In pursuing the prophet puzzle, and this is so critical, I'm not quite sure if the apologists appreciated this point about Vogel and his research, but I do, and you should. In pursuing the prophet puzzle, I have sought to understand Joseph Smith, not to condemn him. Now, the reason he has to put this out is because the former um, story and, and all of the experiences that we've read about that Joseph Smith was involved in through the Mormon version of history has been so mythologized that for Vogel to take a much more accurate historical approach does seem to be condemning Joseph Smith, but what it's pointing to and perhaps properly condemning is all of the built up mythologization of Joseph Smith, which has no chance of being so totally true as the church leaders want us to believe. And so therefore Vogel is not the negative one. Vogel is the one trying to correct the gross misrepresentation of who Joseph Smith was. And this gross misrepresentation from the Mormon leader's stance for their official history is exactly the cause of the split into two Joseph Smiths they have improperly labeled any activities that they don't approve of in Joseph Smith's life as deceptive, satanic, or just wrongly understood. And yet they don't correct that. They just say, oh no, gain your testimony of Joseph Smith's First vision story and his conversion and his translation Book of Mormon as we teach it in properly approved church materials and therefore once again we find the church shooting itself in the foot and blaming Dan Vogel for that. good job, Dan. Next time you need to raise the gun up a little more and cap them in the knee too because they still need to learn their lesson. No, I do not advocate violence. I know, see, that gets into Holland's muskets for the battle. So I apologize for saying that. That was the wrong approach, definitely. The idea is with the historical sources, we need to continue correcting the false historical narrative of Joseph Smith. And I think Vogel's article does this very, very well. I suggest, let me see if I've got the right, yes. I suggest that Smith really believed he was called of God to preach repentance to a sinful world but that he felt justified in using deception to accomplish his mission more fully. So like the faith healer who uses Confederates to create a faith-promoting atmosphere in which true miracles can then occur, Smith assumed the role of prophet. He produced the Book of Mormon and he issued revelations to create a setting in which true conversion experiences could take place. That's pretty powerful. Based on the way the scriptures were incorporated or even translated or used or perhaps retranslated and interpreted in his Joseph Smith Translation of the Biblical Versions, Based on how Joseph Smith utilized scripture, this makes a lot of sense. We begin to see where Joseph Smith himself is coming from. And this is where Joseph Smith appears to be coming from. And the important point here, I don't want to skip this boy. I'll have to apologize to Dan if he's not in the audience. I haven't been watching the comments. I apologize. So, What did Smith hope to accomplish by his pious deception? Now, that's a great question. Seriously, you're going to fake it until you make it? Isn't that Boyd K. Packer's version? But wait. What is the hope of accomplishment? Well, one goal, as of March 1830, Revelation shows, it was to bring humankind to repentance. Repentance. So initially now, when we go back, initially Smith hoped to frighten his fellow humans into repentance and thereby help them avoid the torments of hell, of even a temporary hell. But later on in Joseph Smith's more mature adult life and more mature uh, adult theology, He used the incentive of higher rewards. Meanwhile, if humankind were saved by incorrectly believing in an eternal hell, to that end is why Joseph Smith believed his method was justified. Whatever the means, he believed his followers would be saved as long as their repentance and faith in Christ were sincere. So what did he believe about his own fate? Because he knows he's been deceiving, right? So what about this? This is a remarkably interesting situation. Perhaps he believed that with God's sanction, he could escape punishment. But there is another possibility that's even more profound. And I I was stunned when I read this. This is, oh, yeah. One that takes us to the core of Joseph Smith's private world. The March 1830 revelation declares that the unrepentant would suffer for their own sins. For behold, I, God, have suffered these things for all that they might not suffer if they would repent. But if they would not repent, they must suffer even as I. That's DNC 19, 16 through 17. Of course, the idea that humans can suffer as Jesus did for their own sins. Well, this is viewed by Orthodox Christians as an infringement on Jesus's infinite atonement, of course. But in Smith's day, it was a concept held by many restorationists in one form or another. Uh, I'm sorry he didn't put a footnote and give us some sources. I might call him out on that tonight. I want to see where he gets that. That's interesting. So applied to Smith's pious deception, his reasoning perhaps went something like the following, those who believe the Book of Mormon and therefore repent. Regardless of the true origin of the Book of Mormon, those will be saved. Or perhaps of more immediate concern, they will not be destroyed at Jesus's appearance. And it is for this act that Joseph Smith himself, like Jesus, would suffer in a temporary hell. Is that what I, there we go. Yes, yes. This is remarkable. Perhaps Joseph Smith would suffer in a temporary hell and become a savior to his own followers. And I have circled this footnote because, again, I love reading the footnotes. You really ought to when you're studying historical articles. Footnote 33. Now, this is really interesting. That Smith's mission of saving souls Went beyond the usual calling of sinners to repentance is hinted at when the Book of Mormon applies Old Testament scripture, uh, and and this is the Old Testament scripture that is traditionally interpreted as messianic prophecy to Joseph Smith. Interesting. Jesus, for instance, is made to declare concerning the coming forth of the Book of Mormon, there shall be among them those who will not believe it, although a man shall declare it unto them. But behold, the life of my servant shall be in my hand. Therefore, they shall not hurt him, although he shall be marred because of them. Yet I will heal him. See, that's the famous Isaiah 52 13 through 41, yeah? For I will show unto them that my wisdom is greater than the cunning of the devil, is how 3 Nephi 21, 9 and 10 put it. Here, Jesus alludes to Isaiah's suffering servant and traditionally interpreted as a messianic prophecy fulfilled in Jesus. And you can see that in John 12 and Mark 9. And then it applies it to Joseph Smith. Interesting. On a deeper psychological level, one might view Smith's death as an inevitable extension of a Messiah complex. So uh, the Broome County Courier for 29 December 1831 may have picked up on this theme when it called Smith a second Messiah. Wow. And then, of course, you have all those. uh Who was it? Uh, Joseph Philly McConkey, the son of Bruce Armacock, he wrote the book on, the, uh, on Joseph Smith, the ancient Jewish legend of the Messiah, Ben Berakiah Joseph. And uh, so very interesting how this is approached here. So Smith's March 1830 revelation. This, this is to wrap this up because this is so awesome. Smith's March 1830 revelation, the book of Abraham, the story of Nephi and Laban, and the fortunate fall of Adam. Well, these demonstrate that Smith believed that God sometimes inspires deception, that some sins are according to his will, or that occasionally it is necessary to break one commandment in order to fulfill a higher law. Smith likened the command to take plural wives to Abraham's moral conundrum. That's in D&C 132, 29 through 37. So in attempting to coax 20-year-old Nancy Rigdon into secretly becoming a plural wife in 1842, Smith argued that which is wrong under one circumstances may be and often is right under another, that whatever God requires is right, no matter what it is, although we may not see the reason thereof till long after the events have transpired. We may never know exactly Smith's reasoning, but we can at least say that if he wrote the Book of Mormon became a prophet, and founded a church as a pious deception, it is evident he had the psychological means of justifying those acts of deception. Now, that is quite the study. So that's basically, this will put us in the mood for tonight's interview with with our beloved friend and fellow scholar, colleague, I would say, Dan Bogle. Uh, I really appreciate his efforts at just simply being a credible historian. Uh, I envy him for his successes. I praise him for his successes, and I'm proud of him. And I'm very happy and proud and glad to be called his friend and to call him my friend, which is one reason why I'm so excited for these interviews coming up. So, That's pretty much it. That's what I wanted to cover. Uh, It looks like I've gone a minute or an hour 20. And uh, so thank you so much for showing up. I'm going to call it good. Uh, I will go prepare for tonight's interview and come back tonight, six o'clock for the terrific treat of hearing from the wisdom of Dan Vogel as I interview him and I grill him and I put him through the ringer. (laughs) <laughs> As good friends, we're going to sit back, chug a beer, and talk about religion. And Joseph Smith, Woohoo! what a better way to spend a Sunday night. Although I'm going to be swigging water instead of beer. It's all good. Okay, you guys, thank you, and I will see you tonight, 6 o'clock sharp. Don't miss it.